Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stampu. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends, a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 6.45 Eastern, here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139-335. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, The Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is, vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more, plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and Tiller Rescission. With the help of our guests, we'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanley, reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the banker blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Now please welcome the host of the show, Greg the Goose. Welcome, everyone, to episode 47 of the Gallant Goose and Friends here on Talk Show number 139335. Today is Thursday, August 18th, 2016. We appreciate you all being here. Please keep passing the word along to your friends and family so that our flock can grow. Tonight's topic is open mic. Bitch and moan, scream and yell. Everybody share your story. Gosh knows, uh, last week we got to hear a little bit of mine, and uh, I'd be glad to uh, give you an update, but uh, I really want to give everybody an opportunity to get out there and... Uh, toss the uh, salad around and uh, throw the croutons on. Okie doke, but as always, we're going to jump right in here with our official disclaimer and be right back. The Gallon Goose is not associated with any other program, law firm, accounting firm, or any other legal accounting or other licensed professional entity and is the sole responsibility of the private group of friends which constitute it. All opinions expressed are those of the participants alone and no warranties expressed or implied. This call is being recorded for rebroadcast, so we do not recommend disclosing your private contact information. To contact or be contacted by other participants on this call, please email the host and we'll do our best to connect you offline. To hear past recordings, just go to www.talkshoe.com forward slash tc forward slash 139335 and select the episode. Also, to read the chat text from any past show, just go to www.chatgrabber.com. Type in our show number 139335 and select the episode. 
If you would like to receive a weekly email notifying you of the program, please email the host at thegallantgoose at gmail.com with the subject line, Please add me to the goose. To be removed from the mailing list, use the subject line, Please pluck my goose. Welcome back, everybody. Remember, justice should be blind, not you. Realize that you are as powerful as the tools that you master. So don't forget to check out some of those tools at www.howtowinitcourt.com slash win slash goose. And for those of you experiencing collectors or court cases messing with your credit scores, please remember, go to uh, www.fixmyreport.com for a fast, easy, and final solution to credit score and credit damage troubles. With that, welcome, everyone. Glad to see the board's full and... I guess I'll say that uh, it's been a very interesting few weeks. Continually getting the runaround from the Aquan Altasaurus people. Uh, they keep telling me that they're considering my offer to have more days to move stuff, and they just keep dragging their feet and dragging their feet and dragging their feet. I might have to sue them just to stop dragging their feet. Anyway, simultaneously working on uh, other things to file in the county. Uh, it's been a very busy week in terms of consulting and typing and reading and incorporating a lot of stuff. It's going to be a very interesting approach that we're going to take. Thanks to uh, a couple of our well-placed retired advisors. And uh, there's a lot of blessings out there. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Lance Casino, one of our friends that we had met from uh, Neil's program a long time ago and was part of the original club that was going to try to help him out, was kind enough to set up a legal defense fund GoFundMe page. And uh, as soon as we get that situated, uh, we'll pass that along. I know everybody needs help, but um, it was nice of him to uh, set something up for us to try to keep the show going and keep us going. So thanks and a high five out there to Lance. Okay, um, with that, I guess I have a choice between opening up the board for a free-for-all or doing the old Star 8 thing to raise your hand. Uh, if anybody wants to jump in first with an interesting point or topic or question, uh, press star 8 on your phone. And uh, I'll try to also keep reading the typewritten things here on the chat board. So who'd like to go first? Everybody from Georgia, Oregon, California, Nevada, uh, Oklahoma, Maryland, all over the place. Oklahoma! Hello, Oklahoma. Welcome to the show. Hi, welcome. Thank you. This is my first time, and I thought since I was ready with a question, um, hopefully it'll, um, I'll be able to express it clearly enough that I can get some clarity about it in regards to an answer. I actually have two properties. One of the properties that I wanted to discuss is an America's Wholesale Lender um, loan that um, specifically just names America's Wholesale Lender. doesn't have... Um, a New York corporation or anything like that. So part of my strategy and theory, and there's two different camps in regards to how to deal with One would be that it's void based on Nash, and then the other is to do a rescission, which I did do, but then it's like if it was a void instrument, then rescission isn't applicable. So That's a... Uh, my, that's a, when, you're, when you're filing... A matter of fact, I had this conversation with one of my um, advisors on this very point. Um... You state both things, and you state you state the main one that you want to go on. Like for example, on what I'm working on in my paperwork, I'm doing a set of claims that state that they didn't exist, or they didn't have the right, or the assignments were uh, fraudulent or void, and that, and that there was no right to begin with. Secondly, it says this: 
that in the alternative, we executed a rescission. Mm-hmm. In the event that they say, the hell with that, it's all real. You know, they want to believe in the Wizard of Oz, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you can't prove, or they won't accept that, like you just said, you know, yeah, yeah. the plaintiff doesn't exist and, the, and there is no contract, then you say, okay, well, in the event that there is a contract, in the alternative, I rescind. Right. That's kind of what my thought was. But oh, You want to write I, it down? I, I, use that phrase, in the alternative. In the alternative. Okay, I, did, I wrote that down. Um, because in addition to that, my rescission period has ended, and I knew that, uh, well, the statute of limitations of the one year um, has expired most recently, and I chose the two of the two options is one to enforce it and get disgorgement, and then I would rather just have clear title and be done with the mess. So there's been those recent, and I don't have the cases in front of me right now um, about that. They also lose their right to defend against it after one year, and that's the avenue that I want to go to to um, request quiet title. Right. Well, you're gonna. Demand quiet title. Right. And uh, you're not going to ask a court to recognize that you did a rescission. You're going to tell okay. them. You're going to tell them that you did the rescission. Mm-hmm. And that because you did the rescission, you By can operation do. Of law. Right. You're not going to say, <laughs> Your Honor, would you like to agree with the Supreme Court? No. Right. Right. You're just going to say, boom, 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 here's the, here's the statute, here's the rule, here's the citation, this is done, it's executed, it's over, and this happened on this date. If anything, you want a declaratory judgment that says that, yes, you did those things. Mm-hmm. Not that it was effective. You, mm-hmm. don't want, you don't want to ask them to say that it was effective. You want to have them say that, yes, you did those things. Right, right. All right. It's very important. People have been shot in the, you know, shot themselves in the foot by asking the judge to approve something that's effective by operation of law. It would be like in, it would be like in California, which is, or another state that's a, a non-judicial state, where all they have to do is send in the notice. The trustee sends in a notice that they're going to sell it. And having the trustee go to the court and saying, Your Honor, I know that California law says that I can just do this, but would you like to give it a blessing too? You know? You know, right. it's, the same, it's the same ridiculous concept. And so, if you don't need to ask the judge to intervene and do something, don't. Right. My question, too, then, okay, because that was what I had planned on was to do, like you said, the declaratory judgment. Um, do I also need to get a cancellation and expungement, or does that automatically be a effectuated when you get the quiet title? Or do I need to request those specific... Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I won't answer that uh, specifically. Uh, I say, you know, because this is not legal advice. This is just spitballing yeah. with friends. And, right. and uh, I would say that when it comes to the specifics of quiet title actions, they are different in each state. And that uh, you should talk to a real estate attorney or uh, a probate attorney or somebody who's familiar with those kinds of things in your district in your area so that uh, you can at least get that framed properly mm-hmm. or, or look up something look up the statutes in Oklahoma right I hear that Oklahoma is a really tough state by the way 
it, it, it really it has been. Uh, we we made some good strides um, back in uh, ten and eleven, and um, but then the SC is completely quiet on the MERS issue, which is completely against our state statute and it's just its existence period. Um, and then the lower courts decided we are completely. Um, an assignment state by our, our, our rulings, but they've decided to ignore those completely. So it's been a little bit um, uh, deflating, to say the least. Okay, and you have another property um, that you don't I'm assuming that you live in one of these. Correct, yes. I have a primary residence, and um, that one also, um, and it's you know, it's uh, completely um, the the America's Wholesale Lenders um, House, the one I was talking to before. Now, um, the elect plaintiff is um, Bank of New York Mellon Trust Asset Back, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the other one um, has had a substitution of plaintiff eight times, I think. Um, and I also um, did the rescission on that property as well. And um, just looking to, to execute and um, move forward with the quiet title on both of them. Um, it doesn't have um, any existence of a trust that I can um, find at this point. But the um, Alange is completely defective in that it doesn't have a date and it's not signed by the original lender. Since the Teeler rescission aspect of it only applies toward um, the house you live in, uh, what, what basis are you planning to use to try to get quiet title on the other property, which I'm guessing is a rental property? Um, no, it's not. <clears throat> um, but how is it that the Tila is only the house you reside in? I've not ever heard that before, and I've been following it for years. Um, you know, the, the Tila rescission elements apply, if you read the statute, apply to the property you live in. Okay, the primary residence only. Right. Okay. Well, that's a bit of enlightening news. So I don't have well, a, I don't have a rebuttal for that because I've never heard of that before. So you just said it. Well, I'm I'm just uh, you know echoing other people. Right. Yeah. Right. And what it's right. like. By right. all means, just go dig into it yourself. You know. Right. right. I love it when people prove me wrong. Well, I like to be enlightened as well, so that's always knowledge is a good thing. Okay. Uh, you so I guess that does it for me for now. Yeah, that would be good. Right. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll see who else would like to take a turn here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, everybody. Uh, from the East Coast to the West Coast of California. Who would like to say something? Excuse me. I had a, re I had a very interesting uh, conversation with our friend uh, Corey Goldstein from California from uh, FixMyReport.com. Um, just for grins and giggles, uh, I sent him some information, and he went and ran a, a credit report for me, uh, combined three um, reporting agency uh, report to see you know how screwed up everything was in my world and. Uh, much to our surprise, um, the foreclosure isn't even on the credit report. Isn't that crazy? So, 
I don't know what's going on. Are they afraid to put it on there? Or they took it off? They usually don't take it off for 10 years or something, right? How can it not be on any of the three major reports? I don't know. Corey, are you online? Are you on the on the call here? You want to type in and... Can you hear me? Hello, yeah. You didn't read. I was guessing that was you. Hi, Corey. How are you? All right. So since the since we talked earlier and now, you got any brainstorm ideas as to why this is so bizarre? Well, um, you know, several last time I was on. Hello, everyone. Last time I was on, I had an opportunity to work with several of the other folks that were in the relatively similar type sets of circumstances, and you know, I never ever ever surprised in dealing with the credit bureaus and what they report, nor am I ever surprised in what the credit, uh, what our creditors report, accurate, inaccurate, and, uh, and so what I have found, at least in the three cases of the people I've talked to from your show, is that uh, there have been no mortgages being reported on their credit report. Um, the quote-unquote illusion that uh, there is no mortgage is actually reality from the credit bureau's perspective. Uh, from the credit bureau's perspective, you would imagine, given what you've been dealing with, that the creditor would be reporting for many, many years. With current open active foreclosure pending and current open active reporting history. And in all three cases, none of it was true. Zero. What I find interesting is I did one of those uh, annual free credit things in 2014, a couple of years right. ago. Yep. yep. And, and it was on all the reports. It was there directly from all of them. Well, you know, so, you know, each time a creditor reports information, there's a charge, right? The creditor pays to report. It's a subscription-based service that the credit bureaus uh, offer, and those creditors pay a monthly uh, monthly fee. And I believe, my, my theory, after, you know, being involved with, you know, 6,500 of these cases uh, throughout, you know, since 2004, what I've, found, what I've found is nothing surprises me. And if you're in the middle of a situation, I highly recommend that you really get as updated of a report as possible because you may be fighting against something that doesn't even exist anymore. You know, uh, from a credit perspective, from a credit perspective, this lender that you've been dealing with uh, just doesn't even exist. And so, uh, you know, what I would, you know, the actions that I would certainly take, and not being a lawyer, I would certainly consult with one, uh, would be perhaps a suit to quiet title immediately, uh, which is what the other uh, lovely lady was speaking about before. And, uh, but I would immediately move to sell my property as quickly as possible and be done, you know, personally. And so, you know, the only thing I can say here is that after seeing so many of these unique scenarios with credit reports, Nothing surprises me. I've said it three times already. And based upon, you know, what we see, that's the truth. Greg, that is the truth. What you see on your credit report, that's the truth. You have, you literally, based upon your credit report alone, you can go out in approximately two weeks, qualify for a new home if you wanted to. Not that you'd ever want to deal with a bank, but if you wanted to uh, get, get, you know, uh, finance. You can actually get qualified in finance within probably two weeks, get approved for an FHA loan, put 3% down on it, and, um, and, and buy a new house. You could do that. 
What about uh, finding uh, true creditors that are like uh, local groups of funders or local banks or hard money loan guys? And yeah, that's that for real. absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I absolutely agree. I have a list of about seventeen hundred uh, independent private investors that work nationwide, and I work with them to actually help place people's loans. I think hard money. Uh, if you look at the idea of hard money, it looks expensive. I can tell you absolutely it's not because the cost associated with dealing with these goddamn creditors, these banks, is just a nightmare. You all experience, many of you have experienced the, the impact of dealing with, you know, Aqua, Bank of America, you name it, Wells Fargo. And, uh, and you know, if you, if you find a property, you buy it right, and you can buy it under market, there's nothing wrong with paying a little bit of juice, a little bit of interest on the cost, so you can lock down the property, make some equity, and actually deal with a human being so you know who your lender is. I mean, that would be completely different to me. Yeah, and they're completely available. As long as, they, as, long as it's in the contract that says it'll never be securitized and that they'll hold the paper until they die or until it's done. Well, private investors uh, typically don't have access to institutional resources like that. And so I, I wouldn't see any issue with any of that whatsoever. There are investors that, uh, that are trustee and mortgage investors. They hold notes, and they service their own portfolio. Uh, there's a couple typed-in questions relating to your comments. One says, or could it, or it says, could it have something to do with forfeiture, um, and can they get away with that not being on any record? And the other question was, could it be false credit reporting in reverse? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you know what? I, I so I'm going to answer the second question first. Um, so rarely is credit reporting to your advantage. Creditors will oftentimes not report all the derogatory information on the report because you can't make somebody more pregnant. They either are or they're not. You have lates or you don't, or you have the amount of lates or you don't. Okay. What I what I mean by that comment is that. It costs them money every time that there's a reporting. Maybe it's a penny, half a cent, whatever it may be. You know, times a million mortgages, that adds up pretty quickly. And so um, the probability of an error of that magnitude of $500,000, a million dollars, the money doesn't mean anything, or the, the, the debt, I should say, that they're claiming, doesn't mean anything. It could be $20, it could be a million dollars, it doesn't matter. It's the reporting. So they're no longer reporting on his report. In my view, after looking at 6,500 of these credit cases, I can absolutely tell you that's the quote-unquote best of gospel. That's what Experian has, TransUnion, Equifax, uh, and, and the other, you know, five of the smaller, much smaller credit bureaus. So can it be a credit reporting error in reverse? Anything is possible with the bureaus. We've already distinguished that, and I doubt it. I really, really doubt it. They just gave up reporting. Uh, that's my view of the matter. On, on forfeiture, you mean you mean uh, they got you mean they got writer's cramp? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there comes a point in time. There comes a point in time with creditors, you know, that they just stop. They just stop. You know, um, I was sued. I was sued several years ago by Bank of America uh, for a seventy-five thousand dollars credit card that they said I was in default of. I looked at their lawsuit. I countersued them an 18-count complaint. I won a $275,000 judgment against them, and they deleted off my credit report. Anything possible when it comes around to credit. 
Yeah, Corey, but you know, we know we all know that you walk around with a horseshoe up your butt. <laughs> well, listen, you know what? But you, you know, you guys are you guys are so committed. You guys are so committed to deal with this thing because of how you've been treated. There's been no love, no respect, zero, and so you're following through on everything. And so, if you got a horseshoe up your butt, then you got a horseshoe up your butt, and you won. You know what I mean? You made your point. And um, on the forfeiture side of things, you know, I'll tell you, I, you know, I get, I don't look at it as that complex. Uh, I look at it as the creditor just is no longer interested in the collateral or no interested in reporting. And as a result, they walk away. Just this week alone, with bank, with uh, on a Bank of America issue, I removed a four hundred seventy-five thousand dollar collection. I deleted it for, and it got a got a zero balance letter for a client. Client was ecstatic. We got it deleted. We got a letter of deletion. It's been deleted from the credit bureau. The credit scores went up already, and that was on Tuesday, and today's Thursday. So that's pretty sad. That's that's you know that's a pretty extraordinary time frame. So, you know, I, I highly recommend people to get, you know, not some pre-annual report or not Credit Karma or any of these places, but talk to your loan officer. Make a friend of your loan officer. Ask them to pull a copy of a tri-merge credit report. It's highly, con- it, it, it's so it's such a fantastic document to give clarity and certainty because it's the highest level of document you can have when it comes around to dealing with the credit bureaus. Well, one of the highest tech documents you can have that's available to consumers. So the other aspect of his question around forfeiture was what? Can you uh, refresh my memory, Greg? Oh, let me scroll down here. It was just, could it have something to do with forfeiture, and can they get away with that by not recording it? Yeah, absolutely they can get away with it because there's not a requirement for the creditor to report, Right. There's 96 ways, there's 90, FICO is, and this took, this took several years of me understanding this, there's 96 derogatory ways to report a derogatory item. 96, 96 ways to report a negative item. There are six positive ways. And with that, it's like, okay, so if you're a creditor, well, we all are, right? But, you know, just that alone, you can see what, who the system is designed for. It's designed completely for the banks, financial institutions, to negatively report us so they could charge us what they charge us and just do the things they've been doing to us for many, many years. So those, are my, those are my views, and uh, and I want to congratulate you, Greg, because, I mean, literally, you can go out now and completely turn this thing around. If you need a $50,000 line of credit, you could get one. If you need a $100,000 line of credit, you could get one. Your credit is actually poised for an extraordinary breakthrough over 700 within a couple of weeks. And I just remind you of my little song that I did. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll never sign a loan again. Not with those right. guys. Not with those guys. But that's why I'm interested in, you know, learning more about real people, local banks, things like that, where you, where you walk up and the last thing at the at the at the negotiation is not a signing, but it's a handshake. You know. Exactly. That's, that's what I'm looking for. You know? Money is money is accessible like that and uh, if somebody wants some resources I could certainly create a list in, in, in Chicago for example I mean there are thousands of guys that want to uh, invest and uh, do transactions cost a little bit more than a regular bank although you know it brings integrity to a transaction it's a great point well as long as we're on the call um, 
instead of doing that, you know, why not get some traffic your way and uh, tell everybody your email address again so that sure. if they're interested in uh, hard money loans or local bank accesses, you said, you what, 1,700 different investor groups and ordinary yeah. people? Yeah. yeah. Real, pe real people with an actual phone number that picks up and you can talk to them. So my, uh, my email is, my name again is Corey, C-O-R-E-Y. My company is fixed. My report, F-I-X-M-Y-R-E-P-O-R-T dot com, fix my report. So my email is real simple. It's Corey at fixmyreport.com. And uh, you can check me out online. If you have any questions, you're welcome to email Greg. You can email myself, and I'll be happy, happy to support anybody in getting clear on what the answers are for themselves. So, and, uh, and good luck with whatever you're dealing with. All right. So you're going to hang on for a while? I will. Okay, cool. Um, we'll just move you over here and uh, see who else would like to jump in with a question or a comment and tell a story. Thank you. Okay. Um, star 8 on your phone. There we go. Chris Yahan. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I miss somebody? I did. Connecticut, you were first. Okay, Chris, we'll be right back to you. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut people off. Hi, Connecticut. How are we doing tonight? Hi there. I thought I'd call in and share... An interesting decision that went down in the bankruptcy court in White Plains, New York. This one is in front of Judge Robert Drain, D-R-A-I-N. Now, Judge Drain is well known as a uh, scholarly but also a feisty judge. He has come to the conclusion, I think, that the banks have been busy burning the court system. And he puts his foot down in situations where... There is some shade of evidence to suggest that there's uh, fraud being perpetrated on the court, which, of course, in foreclosure matters, is just about 100% of the time, unfortunately. And this case, which uh, the order actually entered uh, January 29th, 2015, so it's a bit of an older order, but it's one that I just ran into, and the docket number is 10 20010-RDD, the last three being the judge's initials. And is that Henry in, in of who? That's Inray Cynthia Kerso Franklin, F-R-A-N-K-L-I-N. It's a woman whose name is compound, and so the first part of the last name is C-A-R-R-S-O-W, and then hyphen Franklin. And this is a Chapter 13 case where it's a classic story, and I don't have the full picture, but it appears to be that she took out a mortgage uh, with a loan, and then at some point, Wells Fargo Bank got into it. Now, uh, the counsel for the debtor, it was Linda Torelli, and Linda Torelli is a very interesting figure. She appears routinely and regularly in front of Judge Drain, and they have obviously, they're, they're now known to each other. Linda Torelli went into, she took the deposition and did discovery on Wells Fargo. And in the course of that discovery, a, an internal but highly secret manual, the Wells Fargo Foreclosure Procedures Manual, was uh, turned over. Now, Wells Fargo never turns this document over because this is a catastrophic document. And what this does is this provides a roadmap to Wells Fargo's contract attorneys on how they go about fabricating documentary trails and filing documents on the land records in order to then be able to foreclose. 
And what happened in this particular case was there was the usual note and mortgage, and the problem arose that the note was not endorsed to Grant Wells Fargo status to be able to uh, proceed uh, against the debtor. So they proceeded to fabricate a stamp made by the previous lender or holder of the note, endorsing it in blank to Wells Fargo, so that Wells Fargo would claim they held it. Now, the endorsement never said endorsed to Wells Fargo, but the stamp said endorsed and then no name put in it. Now, getting around the qualitative aspect of that stamp, you know, setting that aside, and I would incidentally parenthetically argue that a stamp where the name is not included is an unperfected endorsement rather than a blank endorsement, you know, before we get into those rather abstract legal arguments, which are pretty much lost on most judges anyway, uh, the problem that arose for Wells Fargo was that it was then able, the defendant, bankrupt petitioner, was then able to establish that the stamp was actually put on by Wells Fargo's people. Well, Wells Fargo's people don't have any authority to do that because they're not the party transferring to Wells Fargo, at least in theory. In actuality, of course, the truth of it is, as far as I can figure out, Wells Fargo doesn't have any authority to do anything. They just made it all up as they went along. So the so judge wrote... Go ahead. That would, that would be like uh, me signing one of your checks written to me. Yeah, exactly. So the judge wrote this detailed 29-page memorandum of decision in which he, at least 27 places accused Wells Fargo of perpetrating document fraud on the court, on the land record. Now, that's pretty dramatic. Now, now the, judge, not, the judge made this accusation, not the attorney for the defendant. Not only did the judge make the accusation, but the judge made it a finding of fact. <laughs> so, wow. So you're, now, you're now in the situation where Wells Fargo is totally hammered. And so the proof of claim, which is the way the debtor intersects its claims with the bankruptcy court, was, which was objected to, which gave rise to this uh, in, in, internal bankruptcy court litigation, was sustained. So the proof of claim is gone. Now, where that went after that, I haven't chased it out, but my guess is, knowing the way these things went, is that the mortgage ends up stripped off the land records, and the debtor ends up coming out of the bankruptcy court without having to make any Chapter 13 payments on the mortgage with respect to Wells Fargo. Now, that obviously doesn't stop the proper holder or the proper owner of that loan to step forward and file a proof of claim, assuming they do so before the bar date. But in fact, those entities, uh, we can reasonably calculate, and this is way outside the litigation, I'm just calculating this from the way these things usually work, has long since been paid off by some third-party credit default insurance policy, so they have no reason to step forward into the bankruptcy court. Now, obviously, if nobody steps forward by the time the bar date rolls around, then those claims are barred forever. So that's a very interesting case, but the way the judge has described it and laid out the path that he claims, and I think correctly, Wells Fargo has perpetrated their fraud on the court and their fraud on the land records, as a business practice, emphasizing as a business practice, sets forth very, very damaging uh, representations as respect to Wells Fargo. Anybody that's in litigation with these guys where they're behind the scenes as a servicer, this, this is bonanza country. 
So I, I, I recommend that anybody who's, who's fencing with Wells Fargo or even wants to see how these clowns are operating, go get yourself a copy of this memorandum of decision. Uh, it should be available on uh, that uh, De Antos' website indirectly. You can drag it down. I think that's called Stop Foreclosure Fraud, if I remember correctly. All right. Uh, you could probably find it in there. Go ahead. I was say maybe do a search on Google Scholar. Well, yeah, come up on Google Scholar also if you uh, if you uh, type in in Ray Coretha Franklin, I'm sure it'll come up there also. Uh, now this brings up another event that I ran into, and I ran into this personally uh, for a client of mine, and that was a recordation of an assignment of mortgage, where a mortgage was in theory being flogged over to. Uh, uh, I guess it was U.S. Bank, if I remember correctly. And there you have the standard recordation of an assignment of mortgage. And if you look down into the guts of it, it says, together with the note and the indebtedness. So they're using the assignment of mortgage to also assign the note. And this is one of those assignments out of MERS. Well, and then you have the signature of the corporate officer. Well, of course, I'm wise to that. So I said, well, let's take a look at what this corporate officer is all about. So I ran a search on her, and after digging around through the Internet, I found uh, this officer's uh, photograph, and she turns out to be a 19-year-old girl uh, living in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is where Wells Fargo has their default documents center. And sure enough, she worked, was working there at the time, and at age 19 was given instructions to go sign these documents on behalf of MERS. Now, this is someone whose job before being hired by Wells Fargo to go sign paperwork worked as a grocery store clerk, and whose job after she was through working at Wells Fargo when she quit two years later went was to go and work as a sales girl over at uh, some uh, Internet service provider. It might have been Comcast. Uh, this is not someone who's a corporate officer of MERS sitting at uh, 1818 Liberty Avenue in Reston, Virginia. I, mean, I can tell you flat out, she's never been to Virginia. She's never been to that building. She has no parking space there. She has no phone there. She never got a paycheck from there. She doesn't have a supervisor there. And she has zero contact with it, but it was just told by Wells Fargo, you know, sign these papers that we're giving them to you, and then somebody else goes and signs a notary stamp on it, and then they go and file it on the land records. And this, of course, is a constant problem, because when you look at the paper, it looks facially accurate. But in reality, the paper is a complete total concoction. It's something being dreamed up in some back room somewhere, because these clowns have figured out that if they get the court system to focus on the documents, and the documents look reasonably okay, they're going to win their foreclosure. And the average homeowner doesn't have the resources or the smarts or the wits to recognize that a colossal scam this is and that these documents are simply being mass manufactured in back rooms around the country. But that was impressive. I mean, I don't know of how many corporate officers there are that are, you know, 19-year-old kids out of high school whose previous job was working as a clerk in some retail outlet. So... The warning to I give to everybody is, you know, to watch out for that because once they grind you into the foreclosure point, then, of course, you've got more problems. But even that is not hopeless because there is now a case out that has come down from the Supreme Court of the state of Maine. 
in which a house that had gone into foreclosure seven years previously, or maybe five years previously, it's been quite a while, that foreclosure has now been reversed by the Supreme Court. The homeowner having duked it out and gone through seven different courts, including various courts of appeal, lost at every single court, finally appealed it into and managed to get it into the state Supreme Court, and the state Supreme Court, recognizing the vast pattern of fraud that had been placed uh, by the servicer on this particular property, turned around and said, okay, because foreclosure is an equitable remedy, in such extreme cases, an extreme remedy is appropriate, and the extreme remedy is to reverse the foreclosure. In other words, and basically this is coming back to the principle of clean hands, you can't walk in the court having manufactured documents, which gives you unclean hands, and then look the judge straight in the eye and say, here, look at my great paperwork. You know, I'm the holder of the note, and he hasn't paid, so give me the house. If you do that, your equitable remedy will be denied, if you can demonstrate the hands are unclean. And that's a special defense that you can throw at them, and if you can make it stick, you're home to the races. But it sounds like you're going to have to go to the Supreme Court. Well, unfortunately, uh, at this point in time, you have to, not the Supreme Court of the United States, the Supreme Court in this case, which is the highest court of review in the state of Maine, yes. But remember, uh, once these cases start coming out, and admittedly this was a hard-fought case with good counsel, and they really toughed it out, uh, and that's kind of an unusual situation, but once these cases come out, you now have case law precedent. And anything coming out of it, one of these state Supreme Courts is highly persuasive, has a high persuasive value in the lower courts, even in another state. So if you can point to that, and if your predicate set of facts are relatively parallel to what's been uh, reviewed in this other case and say, well, look, look at what happened here. This happened in a very analogous to what's happening with me. And this was the result. So there is precedent for throwing the foreclosure out the window. And I suspect that what's going to happen very quickly now is that the facade of these banks is going to start cracking, and you're going to see more and more of these cases busting through. And when it finally happens, it's going to happen really fast. And then we're going to see a dramatically different paradigm in how these cases are handled. So there is hope on the horizon. All is not yet lost. That is very encouraging. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Going back to what you said about the Wells Fargo manual, um, yeah. Yeah. do you know where anybody can find that? Uh, yes. Um, I'm sorry I don't have it at my fingertips, but, um, and I believe I do have a copy of the manual. I can probably send it on to you. Uh, but it's out there. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's, been, it's, it's been discovered. It's part of that discovery package, and it's been thrown into the court docket in the Franklin case, if I recall correctly. So it should be part of that docket. Um, but in any event, uh, it is now part of the public record. So um, how you get it, uh, you know, I'm sorry I can't speak to that. I think I have a copy somewhere, and if I do, I'm happy to hand it over. Uh, but here's, here's the follow-up question on Wells Fargo. Let's say they're not the party suing you for foreclosure, but if you do your homework, you find out in the PSA agreement that they might be the, uh, um, the master servicer or a servicer, or they might be part of your deal somewhere. 
right, or the alleged trust, right? Yep. If you can show that they're just part of it, do you think that that would carry weight, even if they sure. weren't naming to sue you? Well, remember, these cases are fact-specific. So what you have to do is you have to bust up what the real facts are. And again, you do that through discovery. Now, they're going to stonewall you every step of the way in the discovery process. And that's, that's a brutal process. And these guys are highly skilled. But most of their discovery answers are the usual rubbish. They say, oh, it's unfair, it's burdensome, blah, blah, blah. You know, it can be easily gotten through some other means. You know, it's not us. Uh, talk to somebody else. You know, the usual nonsense. You gotta, you're going to have to go under a motion to compel. you got to sit in front of the judge and say, look, judge, you know, these guys know, but they're just not coming clean on it. And then you got to persuade the judge. Now, if you can't persuade the judge, then you're in trouble. You know, because, and I tell this to everybody, you can have the fanciest legal theories in the world, but if you can't persuade the judge, it isn't worth anything. So remember, when you go into court and when you go to do your arguments, you got to persuade the judge. And it doesn't, get any, doesn't do you any good to stand up and start screaming, I've been in court 16 times, where am I going to get my justice? You know, they don't want to hear that. So you got to focus specifically on the issue that's in front of the court, very narrowly, and you got to be very calm and just say, hey, look, you know, it's the deal, right? If these guys are claiming they're the holder of the note and they're doing that because there's a stamp on it, then well, then let's take a look at what the circumstances are of how that stamp got there. And if the servicer put the stamp on it, which is what's being suggested by Wells Fargo in their manual, then I think we've got a problem. We're going to have to take some depositions here. We're going to have to take somebody, bring them before the court, and have them testify in an evidentiary hearing. How did this take place? And if they don't want to do that, then why should they be granted relief from the court? That brings up a brings up a, a good point that um, somebody had previously mentioned that all of these instruments are conclusory and they don't describe what happened to cause them to occur and that by just accepting them uh, for face value is to deny yourself the opportunity to find out how they were created I mean well, it would be like who's the father well right? not really and the problem the problem you run into is that the law has developed certain concepts over time, and that is that out of 200 instruments, 199 of them are going to be perfectly genuine. And this is old law. This is before Wall Street. And so, therefore, it becomes a huge burden on society and on the court system to require a plaintiff to prove up every single instrument Simply on the possibility that one in 200 might be fraudulent. And so we have what is well in law, the presumption of truth to a document that's been filed on the land records. Now, that's unfair. In, 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 today's, in, in today's light, in the way Wall Street has been behaving, it's totally ludicrous. But that's the way the law has evolved, and they haven't caught up to this exercise that they have now, except in the state of New York, where they have. But in New York, that's an anomalous case, because New York City judges have gotten wise to what Wall Street's up to. But the presumption of truth to a recorded instrument, or a filed instrument, that's a toughie to beat, unless you can demonstrate that there's some kind of hitch in the document itself, or, as for example in the case that I recited, that you've got the 19-year-old black girl with a high school education sitting there signing as a corporate secretary for some corporation a thousand miles away, well, that starts to look a little fishy when her official employment photograph is with her in short pants and a tube top. You know, you kind of start to scratch your head and say, hey, what's going on here? Come on. 
this is not a corporate secretary of some corporation in Virginia. Yeah, that's not realistic. Right? We know that there's something going on here. She's certainly, think, not a vice she's certainly not a vice president. Well, but she says she is, right? There's your problem. And once you do that, you know, then a certain skepticism, the court is entitled to a certain skepticism, and certainly you are. And then the next thing you do is you have to petition the court for an evidentiary hearing, or you go and you take her deposition. Uh, you got to spend some money. But if you take her deposition and she says what I suspect she's going to say was, well, they hired me. No, I didn't know anything about banking. No, I never worked for MERS. No, I don't know who MERS is. I've never been there. I never talked to anybody there. I have no supervisor there. I don't report to anybody. I was sitting in a back office in St. Paul, Minnesota as a clerk employee in the documents section of Wells Fargo Bank, and they just presented me with these documents and told me to sign them. And I did. Well, why'd you do that? Well, because they told me to, you know. Well, did it occur to you that you were perpetrating a fraud on the land records in all around the country? Well, no. You know? <laughs> right. Well, what were your grades in high school? Well, I got C's and D's. Oh, okay. You know? Well, yeah. Where's the credibility of the bank at that point? Uh, don't you think it goes out the window? Right. So you have to show stuff like that to the judge to get him to be curious. Well, you have to get him to be skeptical. You know, the judge isn't going to do anything. The judge is sitting there as a referee. You know, he's going to let the parties duke it out. And even though it's, an un it's a one-sided contest where you have some bank with millions and billions of dollars to go fight with you, and then you got you at the other side, and you got, you know, 75 cents and a cup of coffee as your assets, uh, you know, that's too bad. The court system doesn't really shred all that much sympathy for that. And I, I think that's unfair, and I think it's unreasonable, but that doesn't get you anywhere. So, you know, you got to rustle it together one way or another. And, of course, one way to do that is to get copies of, of deposition transcripts of people who have worked inside your adversary bank or adversary servicer. And there's a ton of those out there where they have detailed, uh, during depositions, where the depositions were taken by experienced counsel, they have detailed in great length how they did their misdeeds. You know, Or you get a copy of something like the Wells Fargo foreclosure manual where they flat out tell lawyers how to go and make fraudulent documents and go file them on the land records. You know, when, they, when you get that kind of evidence, now you're going to start to chip away, and at that point the judge orders an evidentiary hearing. The judge will say to the bank, okay, fine, bring your person before me in three weeks, and they're going to be questioned by me. Yeah, the judge has the power to do that. And now what? You know, there's a famous case in New York City in front of Judge Arthur Schack in the uh, State Supreme Court of New York in Brooklyn. Judge Schack has just passed away, unfortunately, but he was a famously feisty guy, where he actually issued an order from the bench for the senior officers, and I'm talking about the president and the vice president, of some bank entity to appear before him to answer his questions as to certain matters that had arisen during the course of a foreclosure application. That was a court order. Of course, they didn't show up. So then the judge issued a contempt order. And so now they're in contempt. Now they're facing jail time. They still don't show up. Well, of course, these guys are sitting down in Florida. And they're smart enough not to show their faces in New York. Right? So... The judge has the ability to do it if he gets good and ticked, but, you know, didn't happen. But there's other cases. You know, I mean, right now we have the astonishing situation that's developed where Bank of America has flat out admitted that it was their practice, still is, to shred all of the notes. 
And as soon as they got got a loan or took a loan over from Countrywide, the note would be shredded. Well, how can you go to court and say this is the original note when the original note ran through the shredding machine six years earlier? Well, that's astonishing. I mean, that, that's... I still that, think, that, that, I still they, think that they, there's a really large degree of counterfeiting going on. Oh, it's because, fast. Because, I mean, I know that it's not exactly the same, but we said it a lot of times. A $100 bill is a note, and it's unique, and it's special, it's precious, and it cannot be duplicated. Same thing with a note that you sign. It's a unique, special, precious instrument. And it has to be treated with respect. And these people don't treat it with respect. But there's and reasons for that. The, the reason is that if, if they were to preserve the original note, they wouldn't be able to go and flog electronic copies of it to different lenders or different, different investment groups. You've got to remember, if a, note, if a note is electronic, nothing to stop you from selling it twice or three times over. And if you insure it twice or three times over, it doesn't really matter because the thing goes into fault. You got three different insurance companies paying on the same note to three different other parties. But meanwhile, you've sold it three times, put the money in your pocket. This goes back to the whole point that these people cannot claim or show any loss or harm. That's correct. Uh, once credit default insurance or private mortgage insurance is in the picture, which has not been properly credited to the homeowner or debtor, uh, the question is, are these parties truly aggrieved in the classical sense? And the answer is no, they're not truly aggrieved. So if you're not truly aggrieved, why are you in front of the court? Because let's remember, the court's not a debating society. It's not there to argue some theoretical concept. It's there to deal with real harms and real losses. If there is no real loss to the bank or to the service or claiming to act for the bank, why are they in court? And if the thing has been insured and an insurance company has written the policy and paid the claim, why are you in court? You know, you don't have a claim anymore. You're paid. You know, maybe the insurer has a claim, but that's a whole different ballgame. You're not being sued by the insurer. Right? You know, right. it's the old story. If the note is paid by the insurer and nobody stamps the note as discharged, then you've got this multi-hundred-thousand-dollar piece of paper with somebody's signature on it who does not know that the insurance has paid it. And now that's very tempting. Gee, look at this. Why don't we run down and get a foreclosure, go sell a house for whatever it can fetch, and we'll spend the money on ourselves. Well, that's what's been happening, multiplied by, you know, 22 million houses. Anyway, when you're all through, you're looking at what, a trillion dollars, two trillion? Who knows? It's a lot of coin. That's just, that's the way it works. But it's all if you plus go ahead. It's all counterfeit. Yes, it's all counterfeit. That's right. It's just fabricated. The banks don't call it that. They call it recreated. Now there are ways to tell whether or not a note's been recreated. Obviously, a forensic lab is one way. And the ultimate the ultimate gambit is to say, okay, here's the money. I'm putting it on the table. You hand me the note, but be forewarned, I'm going to take whatever you hand me and take it down to the state police forensic crime lab, and they're going to analyze it. If that isn't an authentic document, now you're dealing with guys with guns and handcuffs. Those guys don't fool around. They're just going to arrest you. Because in every state in the Union, manufacturing fraudulent documents for homes, home, home loans, home mortgages, home titles, are felony crimes. That's five years in jail for whoever does it. Which, of course, is why they hire the 19-year-old, you know, from the backwoods of Minnesota to go sign a document so you don't actually have some mid-level banker's signature on those papers, because those are felony crimes. They're not going to sign it. They're not that crazy, you know. But, they're gonna, but let's keep in mind, the 19-year-old is going to squeal 
you put her under pressure, she's going to sing the song. Everybody's going to know who told her what. And then those people are going to be in real problems. But you got to bust these people open. You know, that's really where the, where the real contest is, is, busting it open. And doing that with people who have left the bank system and are now working somewhere else, and they have absolutely no incentive to lie, those are going to be your best witnesses. Right, experts in banking that are not uh, getting you blackmailed anymore. Yeah, you know, nobody can, nobody can put the screws to them. But of course, they, but they all, some of them disappear, though, for some reason. Well, yeah, that's true, you know. And if they're off the radar and they can't be found, well, then it's your tough luck, you know. But there are ways to, to kind of get, get the grasp of whether or not a document is authentic. And one of the obvious ones is to look at the staple holes. You look up in the upper left-hand corner, and those things will have been taken apart and restapled several times. If the staple holes don't match up, you know, page two, page three, the signature page, got to, you know, you got five sets of staple holes in the first three pages, and you only got two sets of staple holes in the signature page, well, then there's something wrong. You know, somebody's manufactured a new signature page. Or you have an addendum page, you know, or you have the famous Allonge page, which, of course, is a complete fabrication. And those staple holes don't match up. Or these things have had a two-hole punch punch through them. But the punch holes don't properly line up. You know, this tells you that people have been screwing around, putting different pages in there, and that the whole thing is a charade. Now, all notes that have worked their way through any kind of banking system are going to be cal- are going to be covered with these little check marks for people who have gone through it and checked things off. So if your paper shows up and it's nice and neat and clean, it's never been wrinkled, it's never been folded, it's got no check marks on it, right? And then you know already that you're dealing with something that came off some press three weeks ago. Well, there's a way to tell, and that's through the watermark of the paper. Paper paper is watermarked by the year it's manufactured in. And any crime lab can tell you what year the paper was in. So if the paper itself has a date on it, says the note was signed in 2003, the watermark on the paper says 20, 2014. Well, guess what? That's not an authentic document, now is it? You'd be surprised how many times that you can get nailed on something like that if you, if you have the resources to have the document examined. But again, you know, you got to bust the document free and you got to get a court to order it. My guess is that anybody who goes that far will end up with the document and the lawsuit withdrawn if you can get to that point. You know, those guys are going to run away because they already know that they're fabricating stuff. So, uh, yeah, so uh, that would be like a job for uh, one of our friends up in uh, Washington, uh, like uh, private investigator Bill Padlow, right? Yeah, I suspect Bill would have the ability to, to, to figure out how to get that organized. He's been in that field, you know, so he'd probably be a good place to start. Uh, but all of this business of falsified documents surfacing first came out in front of, uh, I believe it was Judge Agresti in uh, a court in Pennsylvania, possibly in Pittsburgh, if I remember correctly. He was a bankruptcy judge, and the question arose about the default letter. And I think it may have been countrywide. And the lawyers came in and produced the notice of default letter and said, Dear homeowner, you've defaulted on such and such, and da 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 da. And then that was challenged because there was some irregularity in the default letter. And then they admitted that the default letter was, quote, recreated, unquote. And so the judge then asked the attorney for the moving plaintiff, 
this was, uh, I guess, a state relief issue or one of those things. They said, well, when was this document done? They said, well, we just did it three weeks ago. Well, what is it? Well, it's a recreation of what it would be. And the judge says, well, what do you mean what it would be? And the, the, the lawyer says, well, this is what it would have looked like if we had sent it out. <laughs> Holy smokes. Yeah. You know, it's the most extraordinary admission. Obviously, a very unskilled sixth-rate lawyer who actually basically acknowledged that he was standing in front of the court with a fraudulent instrument and was proffering it for the court's consideration to obtain an advantage over the adverse party. It's just a totally insane thing for an attorney to do. Basically, you're just saying I should be disqualified and, and, and banned from the uh, practice of law. But he did it, and the judge was absolutely astonished. He did not issue, and uh, it's kind of an anecdotal thing, but, you know, he did not, in fact, issue a ruling from the bench, but he said, this is extraordinary, I will reserve my ruling. And I don't remember how that case ended up, but I think he ended up tossing the mortgage company out on the rear. But these cases are out there, you know. That was, that was kind of the, that was many years ago, that was kind of the tip of the iceberg when the court started figuring out that these frauds were being perpetrated. Anyway, listen, good chatting with you. i got to get off the phone. You guys carry on, and just remember, no case is hopeless. All right, thank you a lot. Yep, bye-bye. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends, a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern, here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139335. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stampley, reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the bank of blues stop you from getting all your clues. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, the Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is, vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more, plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and TILA rescission. With the help of our guests, we'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. Thank you all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other.
Okay, Chris, you were next. Hello, Chris. Well, thank you so very much for allowing me to attend your call. Hopefully I can provide some uh, worthy knowledge of this learned group of listeners and participants that you have. Uh, the preceding gentleman was extremely knowledgeable. In fact, his observations about the Wells Fargo foreclosure book uh, also parallel with the Fidelity book and the Linda Green LPX Lenders Processing Services and uh, Doc X is another thing it's called. In fact, uh, Tiffany Bosco Firm, which has a in-house shield foreclosure firm, National Default Services Corporation, used to have on their website. Did you, did you want to say something? Oh, all I was going to say is, by the way, where are you calling from in the country? <laughs> oh, well, I'm near Las Vegas, Nevada, presently, here in the uh, Ninth Circuit uh, District of California, uh, where the California Center District is located. Was it, was it, I, was it 140 degrees again today? <laughs> uh, no, we got a cold wave. It's only about 107 or 8 today. <clears throat> <laughs> but as I was saying, um, Tiffany Bosco Farm, which is a prestigious legal group out of Phoenix, Arizona, on Camelback Road in particular, they did have and maybe still do have their in-house foreclosure firm, National Default Services. And they also sometimes sub for select portfolio services and other foreclosure entities. And Tiffany Bosco Firm used to prominently advertise on their online presence uh, promoting themselves in a very uh, beneficial fashion for their firm. <laughs> they referenced they had the um, LPS system for document creation to fill any needs of their clients <laughs> to aid in their expeditious foreclosures. Until I cited them, of course, I then ran into a extremely criminal rogue group of judges here in the Las Vegas area. I know everyone's surprised going back to the uh, uh, called uh, oh Operation Greylord back in the that was here in Chicago. Oh uh, yes, but they also had some ramifications. The Chicago mob has deep connections through Las Vegas uh, through uh, the criminal enterprises. You guys got drawn into that as well, huh? Oh, absolutely. They removed Judge Harry Claiborne here from the bench, federal judge, at that time for some malfeasance and some dubious transactions of influence peddling and accepting bribes. In fact, it's well noted that the Las Vegas court is generally staffed with Harry Reid, cabal appointees. Uh, Harry Reid, of course, is connected to the Bronson, Annenberg, Adelson crime families uh, from back in Bucks County, PA, and other locations. And uh, he has strong political influence, being the uh, uh, Speaker of the Senate, you know, the House. Oh, but, oh, yeah, but I'm going to just, you know, close that Greylord comment with this. Of all the judges that were indicted under Operation Greylord, only one was not convicted. And, he is, and he's, <laughs> he's Timothy Evans, and he is now the Chief Judge of Cook County. Ah. And he's been time. So he, he was the one that got away. And, of course, you know, his D, you know the DNA from those people from back in the day, you know, I use the, the term DNA loosely yes. as a metaphor, but uh, the way they think, the way they act, you know, it's just carrying forward. And uh, that's one of the reasons that we have such a difficult time here in what we like to call Crook County. Um, <laughs> 
You know, because uh, the reason that there's no mafia is that they became the government. Indeed. Uh, kleptocracy, or as Michael... Uh, oh, what's his name? Anyway, he likes to call him the narcocracy. Uh, and probably not inaccurately, considering the Clinton's influence on the... And, of course, the Bushes and the others on the drug trade uh, using the U.S. government planes and military to move their drugs. But... Uh, Getting back to this 50 Bosco situation in the criminal judges here in Las Vegas, I had a case there that I got steamrolled on, and the judges uh, intentionally overlooked or were maybe conscious and differently blind to the irrefutable, factual, proven claims I had against J.P. Morgan Chase Bank in their investment capacity. They like to buy, apply that blood brush of national association preclusionary aspects under the Chevron deference contemplation to all banking activities when it only covers an explicit limited scope of particular lending-oriented origination activities of the uh, issuing bank. And other than that, they fall outside that Chevron deference into what they call visitorial making them culpable, liable, and suitable for their non-lending bank practices uh, outside the scope and sphere and protections of the National Banking Act protections, uh, supposedly under the scope of national security. <clears throat> and in fact, the principals at the Tiffany and Bosco firm had held former positions with the J.P. Morgan Chase banking firm as executive vice presidents as legal counsel and also high positions with Fannie and Freddie Mac, uh, these so-called quasi-governmental agencies that buy up a lot of these loans supposedly to uh, uh, fuel the investments to the banking group. And basically almost every loan that J.P. Morgan Chase Bank allegedly purchased, although if you read the PSA, the Purchase and Sale Agreement from the FDIC, supposedly selling WAMU, and I think it was also Lehman Brothers Bank, they did the similar thing, but I'm not as schooled on the Lehman transactions as I am on WAMU, uh, September 25th, 2008 in particular, after banking hours uh, opened to the public, and they did a raid by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, a SWAT team raid, and shut down their Hendelson uh, bank lending facility for WAMU and seized all their assets, uh, hard-end uh, credits and debits and so on and so forth. And many of those, of course, were home equity lines of revolving non-fixed uh, consumer trade lines of household miscellaneous credit, not accounts. In fact, there was a recent case that the CFPB closed. It was called 47 State AGs, the District of Columbia, and the CFPB versus J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, where they settled in a pre-trial negotiated stipulated settlement without any guilt uh, to the tune of about $167 million or as I recall. I'd certainly like to get a copy of that uh, decision, although I do get uh, billings and me, uh, emails from the CFPB, the FTC, and the FTC, and FinCEN on a regular basis. And I follow this stuff quite closely because I am directly involved and I help others. But every one of those loans that they purchased from others after default of WAMU that was closed for defalcation or criminality, malfeasance, and miscreant activities, embezzlement, and bad faith lending practices uh, to their so-called customers and others, uh, is makes J.P. Morgan Chase, because they supposedly purchased it 
this was really quirky and murky because the FDIC, the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, at the direction of TurboTax Tim the Snake Geithner, uh, the so-called Treasury Secretary, who ordered the OCC to do the SWAT team raids, and then supposedly transmitted the interest of Wamu Bank in toto to the FDIC, and doing a full forensic accounting, supposedly, I doubt that very seriously, of Wamu's bank assets, credits, and uh, reconciliation of the total valuation of the bank at about $27 billion for all. Well how, well, how did they do the transfer? By a keystroke on a computer? Oh, man, it is, it is crazier than that. When you read the PSA, they appointed the FDIC to act as receiver both for WAMU and for J.P. Morgan Chase, and as the supposed seller agent for other non-disclosed entities and factions, they acted in the capacity for receiver for WAMU, receiver for J.P. Morgan Chase and their investors on both sides, and other non-disclosed invest, uh, investors, and they supposedly conducted what was termed a low-bid auction of the assets of WAMU, acting as the auctioneer and taking bids from both sides. I'm sure they must have been a lot of hats switching. They probably tied their arms in knots playing all those positions as covering all bases as a unilateral so-called receiver representative, auctioneer, sailor, and bid taker, and reconciliator of the final sale transaction. However, the $1.88 billion that was allegedly bid by the FDIC for J.P. Morgan Chase for WAMU's assets to J.P. Morgan Chase, <laughs> uh, excuse me, to WAMU uh, through the FDIC's receiver form. <laughs> I realize this sounds complex because you have to follow the bouncing ball very carefully. I had to plot this out on paper to be able to follow this uh, uh, legal shenanigans and magic banking uh, press digitation that took place in this so-called transaction, which is totally unconscionable because no way that a party can represent more than one party in a transaction uh, and be faithful and true to the two to the parties, much less the American people or the international monetary fund or the World Bank. Well, I guess uh, you know that was kind of complicated, but uh, thank goodness we record these calls and. People can listen to the playback and hit the pause button and rewind and <laughs> take notes. Well, whatever a... Uh, By the way, I'm going to do an echo check. Is there any echo out there, or are we still clean? Is the quality of the audio clean, or is it echoing? Audio clean, thank you. Go ahead, Greg. Well, what I was going to tell you is that any time a original... Lender sells a note, it changes the character and nature of that note from UCC3 negotiable instruments to UCC8 and 9, which securitized mortgage investments. And they then become a non interested third party debt collector. However, in this particular sale arrangement, which was very quirky and murky, in fact, the only other evidence of any transaction that was conducted at a low bid auction, I've been going to auctions since I was about five or six years old, so I've been to a lot of them. I've never seen one for low bid, but the only other one I know of is what was termed Brown's Bottom by Gordon Brown when he sold the gold that was stolen from Americans under the ruse to confuse of the 1933 Emergency Banking Act of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, whenever he transmitted all the gold of Americans, it was stolen under the so-called to fund the war <coughs> and the bankruptcy of the United States at that time. 
to his European banking friends <coughs> and others uh, for about $34 an ounce. Whoa, whoa, we were not at war in 1933. That didn't happen until 42. I would suggest that there are many different forms of war, and I think this one might have been a financial economic war conducted by uh, some of the friends of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, like Churchill and Stalin and others in the uh, banking community, if you will. <clears throat> okay, I'll anyway, give you. So what I'm trying to tell you is that a good portion, if not, in fact, all of the loans that were purchased from WAMU and likely Lehman by J.P. Morgan Chase Bank make them mere non-party debt collectors. Uh, some would call that non-interested parties, case crashers, and various other uh, still dangerous and uh, appropriate distracted terminologies, descriptors for them. Non-party interveners. Oh, yes. Case crashers. Uh, in fact, predatory, avaricious, uh, vampiric. Uh, there are many different descriptors that these third-party debt collectors think of these banks went back in debt collection activities of others' debts that were acquired is one of their favorite terms they use, which is a fancy term for they bought the debts from somebody else, uh, and that means that they could not have ever been a first party of any party of any interest whatsoever. The more curious fact about that transaction was, although they posed J.P. Morgan Chase as tendering $1.88 billion for the assets of WAMU to acquire them by their debts and credits, they also extended to J.P. Morgan Chase to make it a fair transaction to, and of course, Chase was the only pre-qualified by the Treasury bidder qualified to bid on the assets, although I'm not sure there might have been other interested parties, but they were especially unilaterally qualified, so you only had one party conducting this sale, and that was the FDIC, or however many people were with them for the FDIC, and there what? was no one from J.P. Morgan Chase there or WAMU. There may have been a few people from WAMU that hadn't been conducted to the Who Scout, possibly. But it's very unlikely they did a forensic accounting to derive at a abstract of title, a chain of accountability, or a trail of custody, unbroken, to uh, qualify as evidentiary uh, to prove the transmittal of the interest of those assets without a defect that makes it fatally ineffective and taints the evidentiary quality of the documents that are not authentic and not transmitted and wouldn't possibly have anybody from Watmo who could authenticate the credulity, authenticity, and the quality of the so-called evidence, which would be hearsay at the very best, of purchase from others and therefore not reliable in the business records exception as originators of that evidence so they wouldn't have any first-party competent knowledge to be able to authenticate and to validate their allegation of possessing um, as holders, but not holders in due course in particular. So this well, is a very, very troubling problem. Go ahead. There's, there's holders, and then, of course, there's holder in due course, which, if people don't know, that means that you came about the asset innocently without knowledge of any of the defenses that the originator could have had so that you are bankruptcy protected and uh, and lawsuit protected in your control of that asset. But you've got to have evidence of those transactions to show that those things happen, step one, step two, step three, step four. And then there's also a holder with the right to enforce, or, you know, the person entitled to enforce, Pete. 
All right. And so there's three different kinds of things. There could be a holder, a naked holder, a holder with the right to enforce the instrument, and then a holder in due course. All right. None of the banks want to be a holder in due course. They haven't handled the transactions that way because all of them um, are transmitting these things back and forth by negotiation and not by purchase and sale. Okay? They're just they're just passing it around. It's like if we were all sitting around at a uh, poker table and we only had one $100 bill for everybody to use to buy chips. And so we, we all took a turn using the same $100 bill to buy chips. Well, in fact, talking back to the previous caller and his uh, speaking about the MERS Corp, MERS Corp was actually a uh, shadow shield corporation, an entity created by the banks, so that they could do all these fraudulent transfers and evade paying the registration fees and uh, all the things in the different counties and states around because they could cut costs and so they could freely trade these naked, unsigned assignments, uh, deeds of trust, uh, without the attendant and supporting negotiable instruments, to, promissory notes to support them because they had to be destroyed to put them in the murders by their own orders and rules. And so what you find is these banks point their own employees or kids off the street or somebody else to sign all these uh, so-called executive vice presidents for J.P. Morgan Chase Bank or Wells Fargo Bank or whatever bank it is uh, to give the illusion that there's some authenticity to an absolutely fraudulent, fictitious, what we might term a robo-signed transaction. Uh, and they frequently will pen letters on debt collections and you'll find all sorts of names that repetitively reoccur with uh, repetitiveness of the same individuals re-signing as executive vice presidents, and they're likely just uh, somebody's high school or college student earning a little extra money for, for each one they sign, and sometimes attorneys. Right. Yeah, the previous caller talked about that. He actually looked up found photographs of some 19-year-old that was supposedly a vice president signing stuff. Well, the... Fatal defect in my case that I, the reason the court was so anxious to 12b6 dismissal my complaint, uh, you'll, it's just really diabolical. I ran into rogue judges, and the only thing I ever had in, for my uh, $400 to pay for, for justice was a 26 off pre trial evidence or disclosure discovery hearing, and I never committed to an AO85 for a so-called magistrate judge, which is really an attorney imposting as a judge, and just has an officious position, and they give him that label. And in particular, in this particular case, I have fatal defects in the original documents by notarial fraud and factum, whereby the so-called WAMU loan sales counselor was really a self-indulgent, self-interested a fiduciary who was serving her own self-interest, and she did, in fact, write the loan docs, sell the loan docs to us, misrepresent them as to who the actual parties were. Their guy didn't navigate it, conducted unfair trade practices, and notarized her own documents, which is, of course, a fatal defect, a violation of the notarial obligations of acting in good faith without deceit. And therefore, made it null void and nugatory ab initio from the inside. Yeah, yeah, they would be void on their face. That will absolutely. And but the judges, since they have a fiduciary conflict by having their Q-SIP Christmas funds 
and the same banks that were proceeding against found it their interest to find a technicality to dismiss my case and deny me all statutory procedural due process and all substantial justice. And, of course, our 8F says that the main reason for proceedings is to administer substantial justice, and I didn't get any of that either. So they technically, it was a void judgment, and uh, I'm in the process of putting some paperwork together to mail off to some attorneys to be tomorrow, but it mail, uh, pointing out all these failed defects. In fact, uh, there are serious defects with all their services because under R11A, uh, an attorney of record must uh, that can take liability, liability, responsibility must sign all pleadings, communications, letters, and transmittals, and uh, they did not. And of course, then they had attorneys uh, false testify and perjure themselves by testing to the to the authenticity of the documents to get a cert for foreclosure. And it was a listed attorney on the. 50 Bosco website, list of employees, and so they weren't a competent party to give any evidence and made it a fatal defective paperwork and submission, in fact, false testifying on the record by uh, intentionally deceiving the court, fraud on the court, and fraud in fact. All right. Uh, hey, Chris, um, it's about uh, half past almost. Well, um, I'm here. I've probably given you uh, a um, That's really wonderful stuff. Uh, you said you help other folks. Uh, did you want to... Uh, let people have your uh, contact information, or did you want to have me take that from you offline and have folks get a hold of the show and uh, get a hold of you that way? I think that would be a better thing, and I'll be glad to wait online. And uh, you know, I don't—I'm not selling anything. I'm not offering any services. I just share knowledge in the attempt to guard, protect, and defend those least sophisticated or inabilities to defend themselves and supply them uh, competent knowledge that I've studied and done my own due diligence and obtained myself through due. Di- through my own study as opposed to being uh, affiliated with any bars or uh, legal associations whatsoever. Of course. As, and, you know, the general uh, spirit of the thing is that none of us is giving legal advice. Uh, this is, you know, person to person, colleague to colleague, friend to friend, uh, sharing experience and and lay knowledge of uh, the educational materials that we've learned over the years. And, um, and nobody's pro- proffering you as being an attorney or representing anyone, and I'm sure that you don't think that you're going to represent anyone, right? Oh, I, w- I would never do that. In fact, there, uh, I did get uh, accused in the court of uh, an awful nice practice of law without a license by a former state attorney general, that general. but I cited Sims v. Iron and uh, Square v. Board of Examiners and Trinity v. Pagliaro, and they didn't ever bother me. Yeah, I was just they're trying to scare you, that's all. And uh, I really appreciate being invited and accepted to contribute to the call. I hope it was meritorious for you and the listeners. And uh, I did put a couple of postings that might be helpful on the keyboard there. And I think I was guest number six tonight when I signed in. And uh, if I might assist people, I'm always glad to provide that knowledge. If I can, just like the attorneys, if they want to offer contributions, gifts, or donations, that's about the only way I can accept anything. And it has to be given from the heart for an appreciation. <laughs> Alrighty, well, um, then if you want to stay on the call and listen to see what everybody else has to say. Uh, I surely will. Thank you very much. we got about another 15 minutes left, and uh, we'll just uh, go through here and uh, do a survey of who, is, who else is on the call and see if who would like to come in next. Thank you, Chris. Talk to you some more later. All right, everybody. Um, that was very nice. Chris is 
a lot of interesting stuff there. We had a couple of good callers in a row there. Um, from Georgia, Nevada, Ohio, Carolinas, Oklahoma, everywhere. Who would like to be next? Who would like to throw their two cents in? Press star 8 on your telephone, and a little icon will pop up there. There we go. Hi, can you hear me? Hello, Ohio. Terrific. Hi, thanks so much. I have really enjoyed everything on your call and every time, and I so appreciate you doing this for us. I happen to be, I am in Ohio currently, but I am fighting in Las Vegas in federal court over foreclosure, very complex. Of course, I put something in state court originally, and they hijacked me. You know, all the bankers, bankster gangsters. <laughs> and anyways, I just somehow, of course, they try to white paper you, and uh, I think it's more of an insane marathon, but I think we're already up to 66 things on the docket, but the judges just did give me what Chris was mentioning in this, I think, Rule 26 conference. They're, all of a sudden, they said, okay, come in and talk about this, and Originally, before I even heard what he said, I was going to call to ask if anybody had any ideas on how that worked or how you do it, the computations of, of the damages. But I thought at least maybe I still have my nose in the game if they gave me that, but it sounds like Chris got thrown out right after that, and I'm hoping I can talk to him as well or see what anybody else's ideas are for the new discovery and the new things. They haven't given too many motions um, for anybody else, like I said, we're still in business, and obviously it's a foreclosure, and it's a very, it's a very complicated one, including um, Silver State Bank, which I think was the original lender. I was actually helping my son get a home to attend UNLV for hotel administration, and he was there as a freshman. And this very predatory lender from Silver State Financial Services or Silver State Mortgage. Uh, kept coming after my son because he sold all the VIP show tickets. And he said, hey, if you keep giving me these front row tickets so I can take my girlfriend to all these special shows, I'm going to get you a loan. And I remember I got a call from my son. I go, that sounds crazy. And I, I talked to the guy. He said, well, oh, there's no place to live if you want to keep going to college. There's, you know, the college has grown so big that, you know, you've got to have a house. So anyways, this guy from Silver State, he finds a realtor and finds an appraiser and finds a equity title company, and they go and get him a 390000 Well, first it was like four hundred and ten. They over-appraised the house, bizarrely. This is in 2004, by the way. And, and this I've just newly been discovering. Uh, I started, and anyways, they over-appraised the house, got this loan. They called me to, you know, be a backup, and I said, does my son make enough money to qualify for this loan? They said, oh, he's fine. Okay, you know, and they didn't ask me for any um, documents or anything like that, but I did sign some papers, not the ones that the, they're trying to show me at the mediation. They're got my name is so screwed up. I mean, it's it's all over the place. It's definitely nothing I saw, and they never had my son sign it. And I knew in the beginning when the realtor had picked him up to go to the closing, so I think there was a big civil conspiracy, of course, to get the loan, sell it all kinds of times. And I did finally... When I first started learning, I learned in the beginning when he, I said, wow, well, how'd your closing go? Lots of papers to sign. Were you amazed? He said, I didn't sign anything. I go, what? Were you there? Yeah. Well, what happened? He goes, I don't know. You know, and I go, you didn't sign anything? Because any paper I signed, of course, had his name on it. Anyways, it's all crazy. It's all crazy as everybody listening to these things go. But in 2014, after his father passed, he told me that all of a sudden he was in foreclosure. Nobody had... Nobody in the course of any of this time 
from any of these lenders and all this chain of title had ever contacted me. Nobody ever sent me any papers at my house in Cincinnati, nothing ever. And no contact, no whatever. All of a sudden, well, his dad had been in the VA for a while in, in super, you know, intensive care, and they had been up, and now he was behind. So I learned after that, that was about May 2014, I learned that the house was in foreclosure, and I thought, well, I guess that's why I'm getting these some strange letters about my Cincinnati house that had nothing to do with it, and I just thought it was garbage, and I'd throw it away. So I said, well, how much are we behind? He said, about 10000 bucks. I said, okay, well, let's see what we can do. But the biggest thing we've got to figure out is how to find the right person to pay. You know, I said, it's all over the Internet. You know, there's all kinds of crazy people that will think and do something. And, you know, just like Neil Garfield always says, they're like garbage collectors. Somebody can go through your garbage and find your visa bill and call you up and say, hey, you owe me. So immediately when he said that, I said, well, I've heard about these people on the Internet, jurisdictionary practices and CFLA, Certified Forensic Loan Auditors. So I contacted CFLA loan auditors, I looked them up, and I ordered an audit. So now I'm getting the first information. I go, well, let's see what what happened to this house before we can find somebody to pay. Little did I know now, once I saw that, I thought, oh, my God, I got that audit. I said, this is fraud upon fraud upon fraud upon, and there's so much fraud here. I said, there's nobody. We can't do business with them. And in the entire history, I had personally never written a check to any of these people. And what they did after a closing, they essentially never had my son sign anything to be on the loan. And when I contacted them, that's in 2004, after he said he didn't sign anything, I called up the title company. I go, you know, what, what's up with this? I said, you need to fix this. I said, oh, well, you know, we're sin. They said, oh, you can fix it with a quiet title. Oh, we'll fix that. We'll fix that. I went to the store, you know, one of those staples, and I got a big quiet title thing and had it notarized and sent in. And then I thought it was fixed. Well, it turns out it never was fixed. And, of course, they're presenting documents. There's no place for his signature or him to have any any kind of standing. And I did that. Well, after I got the audit from CFLA, then I started looking up robo-signers. And sure enough, these robo-signers, they were, well, it was in Kenya, being a hairdresser. And I mean, some, excuse me, not a hairdresser, a fashion designer in Kenya. I mean, you got a whole string of them, of course, the same Minnesota connection that came up, the same Wells Fargo and everybody that was sending documents. So in the course of trying to find a creditor, I'm spending more money than it costs trying to find out who the right person to do business with, which, of course, still hasn't risen. But after now two-plus years of trying to figure out how to do business with anybody, and obviously I can't – if I've never paid a check to them, and I know they never handed me any money across the table or anybody, you know, obviously a table-funded loan, predatory, if anything, or they just stole my ID and my credit – and they sold it because it was found in 11 trenches, you know, 30 times over as a single woman with a vacation home. And they threw in some second rider, which I think was another slide-in thing, in order to be able to securitize it for even more money. Like, you've got the highest chance to fail. You're part of this um, program. And I think of it like a Las Vegas sports book. We're going to bet on this team to fail. So the greater they could make chances for you to fail, the more money they were able to get. And I could see this original lender, which we all know now isn't the original lender. All these people have been paid in full and made a fortune on. And I'm, I'm stuck with nobody. I couldn't put the house on the market because, number one, I can't in good conscience let a realtor list something and or some new buyer buy something when there are all these defects on the title. If you can't get a clean title, then I can be sued too. And it's not right for anybody to spin their wheels to do that. So it's it like my hands were completely tied on what to do without attempting to now go to the court. 
also because the appraisals were so purposely overrated. You know, I found out, again, this is the discoveries in 2014, summer, the harder I was trying and the more frauds I was coming up with, including this what I'll call a civil conspiracy between the appraiser, the lender, the realtor, that they, they were all the title company, and then wherever they went up the chain as we titles, uh, and including attempting to go to a mediation with my son, and they bring in a substitution of trustee. They bring in a U.S. bank, which would have been for an adjustable rate trust, 2004-1. And, of course, it was a McCarthy Holsus. That's an attorney debt collector. It was there, one of their attorneys. He had no authority. He didn't know. I asked him how much he bought the loan for. He didn't know, of course, he didn't know anything. It is that he didn't have any authority. Um, <laughs> sorry to tell you that's a long, crazy story. But, anyways, uh, now I'm in this. now I'm in this court. Going oh, hold on. Hold on. Yeah. Uh, um, guest six, who's not on the, the phone, but just on the chat board, typed in here, see, you should see this, invalidating a judgment for fraud and the significance of Rule 60B. And it says three, or one, or two, or three, or four, or six, but not five, by Dean Wagner, Duke Law. Dean Wagner... Okay, and okay, because I'm talking to you on my phone right now. But if I go then after the call on the website or somewhere, I can find this. You can do that, or you yeah, um, you can go to chatgrabber.com and then put in our show number one three nine three three five, and then select this episode number forty seven, and you can read from the chat board. Oh wow! Okay, very cool. Thank you, and hugs to everybody on on all of that. <laughs> but anyways, I'm trying, and I I keep thinking as crazy as all this is, nobody should do. And I, I understand how they've stolen so many people's houses now because this is just intense. It's like every day I have to send document after document after document working for the greater cause anymore because there's other, otherwise there's hardly any way to justify it considering the technical worth is what they overpraised in the beginning. Would you, mind going, would you mind going back to the creation of this purchase and this loan? Just so, because I'm a little bit unclear myself. Um, yeah. All right. Yes, the creation and the purchase of the loan. Here's okay. um, I, don't care about, I don't care about the hyperbole that the uh, broker or the real estate agent said. That that goes with the territory. But you signed something. Your son didn't sign anything. He's living in it. Who's been paying the mortgage he's, during all that? He's paid the mortgage the whole time. I never made a payment to them, except for sending money from actually a joint account for the down payment, which was supposed to be a conventional loan. Sent over a hundred thousand bucks, and and uh, <laughs> and then they said the house didn't appraise, and I had to send them ten thousand dollars more cash. I said I've never heard of something adjust the price. And then they said no, this is Las Vegas. Everything's different in Las Vegas. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. And, you know, right? Yeah, you have to go to school. You know, we have to close on this close on this house. Of course, I'm relying on their fiduciary responsibilities. I, they verify the money in my account, and I, my job was to send money for down payment. They never took any, um, any information from me. Of course, I guess they would get off the bank verification. They'd have my Social Security number, of course. Uh, and then the cash showed up to them, and they asked for the extra 10. And I was specifically told that I was not needed to come to any closing. Did you, did you sign a note or a mortgage or a deed of trust or anything? Well, I don't think that was what it was. The papers that they tried to present to me at the mediation were definitely not the papers that I, anything I, I really signed. I know, 
I have been a securities principal before. My job was to cool, review every paper to make sure it was perfect. I can see papers when I'm looking. It's not even the way I sign my name. Not, I know it's not the papers, what they presented, that anything I did sign. But I did sign some stuff, and I, I know I signed a validation. I signed a wire to send the money um, from my bank, and I signed a couple of things, but definitely not what they're presenting. And I didn't sign to buy a vacation home that my son wasn't even allowed to live in. Did you sign a credit application? Did you sign an application for approval? No. I didn't sign anything like that. They didn't ask me for um, anything about me, any financial information. I didn't produce any, uh, you know, income statements or any um, tax returns, nothing. That's why I said right. I had asked him, does, does he make enough money to qualify? Here's my, ne- my next question. Yeah. In the foreclosure case, who's the name defendant? Who's the name defendant? Oh, okay. I got Silver State Financial Services, U.S. Bank National Association as trustee for Securitized Trust Adjustable Rate Mortgage Trust 2004-1, DLJ Mortgage Capital Inc., Credit Suisse First Boston Mortgage Securities Corp., Wells Fargo Bank, N.A., Quality Loan Services Corp., Mortgage Electronic Registration System, a.k.a. MERS, Does 1 through 140, Inclusive McCarthy Holsus, a limited liability partnership, and equity title of Nevada, LLC. That's the defendant? Yes, I'm the plaintiff. Oh, no. On the foreclosure case. Oh. In the foreclosure, who were they foreclosing on? Oh, well, they're foreclosing They're foreclosing on the house. I guess I haven't seen it. I've got to look at what the deed of trust is. Probably since it's just against me. It's probably quality loan services. They were trying to foreclose originally under U.S. Bank um, Trust, but once I sent um, qualified written requests and a whole list of things to say, uh, U.S. Bank called me up and they said, we don't have your parcel, we don't have your name, we've never had anything to do with you. I said, even a substitution of trustee? They said, no, nothing. We can't find anything ever. So, But then the mediation tried to come, like I said, with this wrong person. Then I hired an attorney to try to do the judicial review for me. I was in Vegas then, so I came back to Cincinnati, and he didn't do it at all. So then it started all this other rumbling, and then I had to come and start doing everything by myself which isn't what I want to do, but it's like, who do you, who do you call? <laughs> you know, where do you get somebody? And including, as soon as they, they hijacked me right instantly into federal court, every second you have to go back and forth and write this stuff. There's no, there hasn't even any time to find somebody that could do it. And, of course, you know, I, I, judges, this is, this, is a, this is a tough thing everybody's, everybody's going through. So, like I said, again, thank you so much for your support group and your help and, everything that's going on out here for us all. Well, we're all just doing the best we can, limping along. Yeah, and I was sorry to see that thing about you having a bad experience in your home. That really disturbed me. Yeah. Glad to know you're doing better. That was really that was really tough, you know. It's like something really bad's happening to a friend. <laughs> well, every day on this side of the grass is a great day, okay? There you go, right. And, yep. uh... I just keep trying to keep my nose to the grindstone and turn in one thing at a time because otherwise it's almost... And, I, and, and, of course, the other people do all these things. They throw all this ridiculous stuff at you that has nothing to do with what the real facts of the table are, and I fully understand. I even went and took... When I found out so much fraud originally with my CFLA audit, I even went and took their course 
and got certified as an auditor just to keep to understand even more and more and more how god-awful this whole economic fraud is. But I also understand is once you're knowledgeable that there's other people are doing fraud, I couldn't pay them anyway. I can't do business with them. I've never done business. We can't be an associate of somebody we, when we knowingly know they're in fraud, right? Right. Can't be a party. So it's like, what? when the hell do you do? <laughs> well, if you know it's fraud and you participate, then you're guilty too, and you can't recover from it. Exactly. So I just to my son, I said, we can't, we can't pay any of these fees. We can't do anything no matter what. And none of these people are the right people. None of these people gave us any money. And this is really, really bad. And it's... <laughs> Oh. Well, in addition to trying to steal everybody's property, they're trying to crush everybody's spirit. Uh-huh. And uh, if they can crush the American spirit, then put everybody into a box and, right. you know, paint zombie on their chest. Exactly. Yes, and they're, they're professionals, at, professionals at doing that. And it's sometimes interesting, their little wording, how they attempt to ridicule or defamate what you're attempting to say versus focusing on anything important. The hard part is, though, we all come down to, yeah, who's, you know, who's in the court? So, all righty. So, uh, um, so really, first what? Go ahead. Next week I have my first telephone conversation with the magistrate and I, everybody, and that was on this t- Rule 26 conference. But I was kind of originally calling before we got into all this just to say, okay, how do you do these computations? Or does anybody have a, a way that we know how to you know, I guess financially say what each one of these harms is. But I each think one, of these. Oh, one of these. Oh, But when it says right. it's a conference, yeah. the rules. The yeah, when it comes to the whole, if you're going to talk about doing stuff, you're going to have to, you're going to have claims. All right, right. you're making certain claims. Yeah, which so I did in the original complaint. I just haven't itemized them for a cash value. And then you have to know what the elements of each of those causes of action are. Mm-hmm. can't just say, you know, he punched me in the nose. Well, what are the elements of being punched in the nose? Broken right? nose, we nose, and my bloody nose. And I wrecked no. my beautiful shirt. <laughs> no. no, what if the guy tripped and fell and accidentally wrecked you in the nose? That's not, that's not a malicious punch in the nose. All right, so you've got to have intent. And then the action. I mean, so every every cause of action is like that. You have to go and study in every uh-huh. in every in every different state what the different elements are that you are required to bring to prove to get your cause of action claim recognized, so that they don't dismiss it for failure to state a claim for which relief can be granted. Okay, and then of course you have to find out that the court can give you relief for that thing. All right, and then you have to find out what are what are the pieces of admissible evidence that I need to get and in order to support the different elements of the cause of action that uh-huh. I need to prove? So you've got your claim, cause of action, the elements of the cause of action, and then the evidence that you need in order to support that, which might include an affidavit. It might include uh, copies of checking accounts. It could be a lot of different. depends on what you're saying. Right, right. Um, but you have to go and find out those things, and you can. You can look up, you know, what you're claiming is wrong in your state code, or in this case, in Nevada state code, and then find out what are the elements, and you can look that up and find it. And it's basically shepherding it through so that you know 
when you go into court that you're going to have all your ducks in a row and providing all the information that you need in order to have a winning claim. Right. I really care about being properly prepared. So that's just each little step on the way. I'm trying to learn the rules and then see, and, okay, what does this mean specifically, just so I don't mess up on any bingo. I, I highly recommend going back and listening to some of the previous guests we've had on the show um, and some of the recordings. I don't know if you've got, like, an MP3 player that you put it in your car or something like that and, and wander around and listen to. We've had a lot of attorneys and a lot of... Uh, folks with uh, really good insights into how to, you know, try to get your claims properly stated um, from... Uh, well, I know everybody's been talking about all of a sudden this passing into this discovery and this evidence is a, su- is a super tricky part while they're trying to get you again, which we know that's their goal. Um, so that's why I said I just want to be armed and, armed and dangerous. <laughs> I guess that's not really the good word, but I don't know, at least prepared. <laughs> Yeah, anytime you can use something that they created and, and, and entered and proffered as being true, because if they submit it, then you can take it and use it for yourself. Yeah. And they, they would look really stupid going, oh, no, no, that's not admissible. Wait a minute. You brought it in, idiot. You know? Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. All Those right. Challenge- take a big hug, and everybody on the phone, take a big hug, and thank you all so much. Really appreciate it. All right. Take care. We'll talk to you soon, I hope. Bye-bye. Okay, everybody, we're getting close to wrapping up here. Who would like to, uh, you know, be the dessert on this call? Uh, North Carolina, Nevada, Chris, Sonny, and Georgia, anybody? Give me a star eight, raise your hand, and uh, you can be our finale <laughs> for the show. Hello, Anybody? Please press star eight on your phone, and uh, you can raise your hand and uh, chime in. Questions, comments, criticisms, prayers, winning lottery numbers. Everybody would like those. Hey, folks. Did everybody go to sleep? (laughs) North Carolina. Good evening, North Carolina. You'll be our... You can, uh, oh, and uh, Chris would like to get a final word in after you. So go ahead. How's it going? Okay. Um, lots of prayers. I got something I can do. And um, and I wish you had some great news for us on your own personal story, Greg. But I'm thanking good thoughts. And um, and uh, that, that that this has been a great call, I tell you what. And um, the, that thing about Wells Fargo, I've heard of that before. And now I've got some real good good, um, I'm going to say breadcrumbs on it, and Papergate came right to the rescue, man. She's she's right there with um, some great intel. Anyway, um, I have a sort of a Wells Fargo in my closet that I may look at, be able to look at that again. So um, thank you for a great call, and um, I'll be staying tuned for the next, uh, the next chapter. Yep. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. We're going to try to just keep going on to the next chapter, you know, just uh, for what it's worth. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, let me jump over here to Chris one more time. Go ahead, Chris. Well, thanks, Greg. I was just going to let you know I did send you my contact information with Telephonic, and you do have my email there with it that you has been on your list for a while. And I did put that post up. Oh, okay, and I did put that uh, post up there about the invalidating judgment fraud. That's a really good reference uh, tome for or treatise 
It's not very many pages. I think it's about 10 or so. Uh, but it basically uh, it points out a lot of defects. And they talk about extrinsic versus intrinsic fraud. And both can be uh, a cause for overturning a bad lower court decision. And that's part of what I've been doing. I mean, there's a lot of things I can share with people. Technical assisted preview, which is really preview. Some of the skullduggery, the torts, the dirty tricks. Uh, it seems to me that now what they're doing is almost every paper you, pre you present, in fact, many people don't know that you have to do a clerk's motion for uh, entry on the record or inducement, as it's called, to put your evidence exhibits into the record. Exhibits such and such. It's not a complicated exhibit, but most people don't know that you have to do it. It's one of the secrets of the trade that they don't reveal, and I can't find it anywhere in writing, although I did run across some things pursuant to the hearsay rule and some new additions that uh, operate on that. But they absolutely are requiring you to basically have an affidavit with almost every uh, submittal that you do to the court. Well, an affidavit is just a statement of facts that you know to be absolutely true that you can't be impeached upon. And, of course, you don't want to put theories in there, but facts go into an affidavit, an affidavit of truth uh, to support your, in fact, every complaint has to have a affidavit determinant to support the complaint so that there's a party with interest that agrees to accept culpability, liability, and suitability for the claims in the complaint. And so if they bring a malicious false complaint, they are certainly uh, suitable by the aggrieved party who had been maliciously prosecuted. So these are important things that we must know and must avail ourselves on so that we don't have fatal defects and give them easy re reasons to dismiss our complaints, 12B6 them, or other defects. And uh, there are always caveats or exceptions to the rule. So if you can articulate with specificity and criticality uh, the reasons for your mistake and not submission, as the attorneys like to call it, and Hillary specifically, they always claim mistake. Of course, uh, they're supposed to be confident and knowledgeable, and therefore they shouldn't be uh, given the wide breadth of uh, pretense of mistake to cover up their getting caught for their fatal defects that they did intentionally, but they want to try to deflect and aver responsibility. So that's all I got for you. Thank you very, very much. Um, thank you so much, Chris, and uh, it's a pleasure having you on the call and look forward to uh, having you join us on future ones. I didn't um, catch the name of the young lady that was on the call before me in case that she... Neither did I. She was from Ohio. And, yes, she uh, said she was from Ohio. The case was in Las Vegas, so that's fine. <laughs> I was a little cut off guard there. Anyway, be blessed. You know what? She's still on the call. Um, hi, I just unmuted you. Am I unmuted now? There you are. Okay, fantastic. Yes, I was talking to you and saying hi. Thank you. So, Chris just wanted to know who you were in case you wanted to reach out and talk to him or email him or something. But I would definitely like to. Um, do you want my email? Um, I can take that. You can send. send or, do you, or you can give him my. You can send him my phone number. Um, you can send me an email at thegallantgoose at gmail dot com. Okay. With your, okay. your phone and email and your name, and okay. then and Chris has said he already did that too, and then. I'll transmit that back and forth between the two of you, okay? Thank you all so much. Really wonderful. Really appreciate it all. All right. Thank you both. All right, then, uh, if that's everything, 
That's all the time we have tonight, folks. You've been great. Please don't forget to check out the comments and resource links provided on the chat board by going to chatgrabber.com and then select the show, 139335, and then this was episode 47. You can do the same thing with all the other shows as well and look at past notes from other callers and, and bloggers. So just wanted to let you know that that's how you can go back and read the comments, texts, and references that people have put up in the past. We want to thank you all for coming onto the show tonight, sharing your thoughts and feelings, and hopes and dreams. As always, we encourage everyone to email us at thegallantgoose at gmail.com with questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests. We hope our program tonight was helpful for all of you. And on behalf of everybody here at the Gallant Goose and Friends, we thank you all. Good night, everybody, and hopefully we'll hear from you all next week. This is the Gallant Goose and Friends, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139335. This is Big Papa Stanley reminding y'all when it comes to saving your house, don't let the Bank of Blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. I was born in Illinois In a place they call Chicago I was born in Illinois A place they call Chicago Now see I was stuck on the city streets Where the songs survived But I was here to tell my story South side in the zone they call the valley. For fun, we bought penny candy, chase rats up and down the alley. I was born in Illinois, in a place they call Chicago. You see, I was schooled on the city streets when a strong survivor. Seven, daddy worked two jobs. Mama held it together. Walked a mile to school, had to fight every day. Sometimes I kept my lunch money, sometimes they took it away. I was born in Illinois, a place they call Chicago. Man. I had to make a decision. I always knew I would be a musician. No drugging or thugging. Doctor, lawyer for me. I'm gonna play this guitar. I'm gonna make this thing play. I was born in Illinois. A place they call Chicago.
like hell huh. all the time. But the sun was you see, they were so sublime. I used to run with the sun at the point on a lake, playing with the girlies. Ooh, with a party. 